How many of you have ever been part of a church that had divisions? Certain groups over here and other people over there. Uh, maybe you considered them cliques. Maybe they got to the level of factions. I hope not, but maybe they even degenerated into a church split. Well, if you've experienced any of that, uh, why don't you type in the chat box, yes, so we will uh, we'll know that that's the case. And I'll wait just a moment. We'll see, see what the uh, response is. Well, the uh, chat box, as far as I can tell, is lighting up with yeses. I, I wish the question had been, how many of you love my preaching or something like that? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have to say, friends, and you can keep adding your answer if you've not yet. Uh, I have too. I'd be writing yes right now also. Uh, oh, thank you, Amy and Mei Ying. Appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> all right. So years ago uh, at a different church, I, there was one particularly bad split. And I remember because during that summer, every week I would come into church and I would see empty seats that usually weren't empty. And I would wonder like, are these people on vacation or are they gone for good? I, I, had, to, I had to explain to our son who was 12 at the time why he probably wouldn't be seeing much of his best friend anymore because that family also chose to leave. So, so for all of you who typed yes in the chat box tonight, and for all of us, I come with good news tonight. And that is that God in his mercy wants to spare us the pain of that. And so much of the New Testament that he inspired uh, helps us learn how to live together in Christian community, how to stay together despite our natural human tendencies to subdivide. And so tonight, I wanna to look at how we as a church can keep these kind of cliques from forming. Now, Savior has been blessed over the years with just a great degree of unity, thank the Lord. Um, but how, how do we make sure that that continues? How do we stay unified and not pull apart? Well, there's no better case study we can learn from than one of the early Christian churches, uh, which not only started the split, but when it did, it was a bad one. It wasn't just into two groups, it actually split into four. So here's the background. In the year 50, about 20 years after Jesus rose and ascended into heaven, a short, bald missionary named Paul started a church. And he did it in a city a lot like Chicago, a major business city. And it was not that far from Athens, Greece. The city was called Corinth. And Paul lived there for two years, got the church up and running. And then he moved on and worked with other churches and started other ones. But two or three years later, after he had moved, he found out that this church he had started and poured so much of himself into was having a really big problem. And he tells us about it in... First uh, Corinthians 1, our first reading tonight that Christine read so beautifully. And we start there at verse 11. 
Paul says, some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. You guys are fighting with each other. Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. And others, others of you are saying, I follow Apollos. I don't like Paul. I like Apollos way better. And some of you are saying, well, I follow Peter. And some of you are trumping that and saying, I follow only Christ. Now let's get clear on these four groups facing off. Group number one are the people who still follow Paul, which is kind of obvious, isn't it? I mean, Paul founded this church. He started this church. He baptized some of the people in this church. And, and so this is, is kind of straightforward. But, you know, when Paul preaches, he admits he sometimes can be a little shaky. He tells us in the next chapter, verse 3, I came to you in weakness. When I preached, it was timid. I was timid. I was trembling. And Paul probably wasn't all that much to look at. If a second century description of Paul is right, not only was he short and bald, but he had a hooked nose and a unibrow. So then there's group number two. This is the folks who follow Apollos. Well, and no wonder they do that because Apollos is brilliant. Apollos has trained in Alexandria, which is like the Harvard of the ancient world. So this guy is a genius. He's a scholar's scholar, and he's a great public speaker. So all the people who've kind of become disappointed with Paul's preaching have really latched on to Apollos. All right, and then the third group likes Peter the best. Well, think about why they, they should. I mean, Peter's been a Christian longer than anybody, longer than Paul, longer than Apollos, for sure. Peter was in direct contact with our Lord Jesus, and Jesus said he was building the church on him. So obviously, he's the best leader, and we should all be following Peter. And then there's this fourth group, and the final group says, we are so spiritually above all this because we follow Jesus. Like, top that. I mean, we are so mature, we rise above all human leaders, and now, of course, they're forming their own group. Now, how does Paul solve this problem that has come into this church that he loves? It's now splitting four ways. How does he solve us versus them versus them versus them? Well, let's notice for a moment what Paul does not say. You'd think if Paul were like a lot of other leaders, he would step in and say, excuse me, people, remember me? I'm the apostle who started you, so I get to make this call, and maybe you could all get back under the Paul group, and we're all going to go together, okay? It's my way, or the highway, because I was your spiritual father. I was the guy who started this thing. Or, if Paul were kind of like the way a lot of leaders are uh, in politics and business and so on, he might try to size up, okay, which of these four groups is the strongest? Like, which one has the most people, the strongest leaders? Which one has the momentum behind it? And, and, and then we'll try to get the other groups to sort of lump in with them and accept whoever their leader is. I mean, this is the way political deals get struck every day. And, and so it, it's, Paul could have said to them, hey, look, people, we're, we're not going to be able to keep going like this. And so I'm willing to cede my block of delegates um, to Apollos, if the Peter group and the Jesus group will give their delegates to the Apollos group too, of course, I would like a nice position in the new Apollos administration. But what Paul does instead is something so different from all of that thinking, which we're used to, so surprising, even shocking. Paul says the very fact that there are subgroups shows that you don't understand the way God works at all. 
The notion that you can live in a church and have this us thing, us them thing starting to go on shows you have completely missed how God gets things done. And Paul does this judo move where he flips our assumptions upside down. He says, let me tell you how God works and let's call you all back to that. So let's listen in because <laughs> as we saw in the chat box, there's a great need for this today, is there not? Paul says that how God works is that he hides his power mostly in weak people. God builds strong churches through weak people. Now, well, how does that apply? Well, here's how it applies. If you and I are starting to rally behind, look how strong my leader is, and separating over that, we haven't really begun to accept that that's not the way God gets things done. Paul says in verse 26, remember, dear brothers and sisters, hey, just saying, few of you were wise in the world's eyes. You didn't have fantastic educations. Few of you were powerful. You didn't run the shots. Few of you were wealthy when God called you. Because you know what? When God calls people, he usually calls the opposite of that. We love people with a great education and enormous social skills and some money, which I suppose is normal. But what Paul's saying is God has this crazy habit of releasing his power through outsiders, the voiceless, and people down on their luck. Karen, my dear wife, who was here a minute ago, <laughs> she's actually still here. Um, she almost lost her faith and gave it up completely at Del Nor Hospital back when it was in St. Charles. Uh, she and I had just lost a child in utero. It was so painful. And then the doctor came in. I remember because he sat on the edge of the bed, which doctors don't normally do, and I'm sure they're trained not to do. But he wanted to be closer, and he said, I'm so sorry to say uh, you're not going to be able to have any more children. And that was just devastating, as you would imagine. And in her grief and her despair, she began to chuck all this stuff about God. And a day or two later, a guy named Bob from our church then visited her. Well, Bob was an on-again, off-again, mostly on-again heroin addict, and he had a rap sheet longer than my arm. And he came into her hospital room and he began exhorting her like an old-time country preacher. He did not care who was listening. And he's like, look, God has good for you. And I know right now you're thinking, Bob, you're full of it. But I'm just ignoring that and I'm speaking right on into your spirit. Well, you know what God did? He took that broken man's broken words and he began to restore her broken heart. And the reason she's a Christian today and therefore a pastor today is because God has this way of working through weak people. Now, why? Why would God do it like the backwards way from how we think? We're like, get the strongest leader, get the lead horse who can pull the wagon, and we'll all get behind that. God says, no, no, no. I, verse 28, Paul says, God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing, or as the message translation puts it, God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses. He chose nobodies. Why? To expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. In other words, to get rid of all the pride around all this. And as and Paul says in verse 29, as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. In the, in the normal leader plan where you get behind the strongest leader, you brag, oh, I'm on the winning team. I have the strongest person, blah, blah, blah. In God's way, nobody can brag. Nobody, nobody can say, well, you know what? It all comes down to leadership and we've got the best leader. 
No, instead, we all have to say it all comes down to God. And God can work not only through the strong, but he seems to have a love and <laughs> a delight in working through the weak. Sometimes over the years, uh, somebody has meant to pay me a compliment and they've come to me after the service and said something like, you know, I love it when you preach. Wink, wink. Meaning, wouldn't this church be so much better off if you preached more and those other people preached less or whatever? But what sounds like a compliment, stay with me here, is actually a comparison. And the comparison leads to competition. And competition leads to division. So Paul says, foul, and he throws a flag on the play. And he says, here's how you should look at Christian leaders like me and Apollos. He says, what after all is Apollos? What's Paul? We're only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Yeah, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but you know what really matters? God makes it grow. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So here, friends, as you and I grow in the Christian life, here's what we should be moving to as we mature in Christ, is that we respect our leaders, right? And we try to work with them and make their life not miserable as best we can. We do honor them, but we never idolize them, right? We, we, we get out of the comparison game where we think they're so awesome and we start pitting them against others and saying those other people are so wrong and whatever, whatever. We move beyond that. You can usually tell like a younger Christian when they're still going, man, I can't believe I got to hear so-and-so, big name. I got to ride with so-and-so. I got to shake the hand of so-and-so. Paul says, I don't think like that. When I went up to Peter and all these stars, superstars in Jerusalem, it didn't matter to me who they were. I just wanted to make sure out of respect for them that they acknowledged my ministry to the Gentiles, which they did. So anyway, I, 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 even longtime Christians, though, can get caught up in this. And I'll just share my own struggle. I, I've really come over the last years to get to know Bishop Todd a bit. And I just really respect him. I, I love his character. I love his heart for church planning and mission. And, and it's, it would be very easy for me to think, I love my bishop. I got my bishop over here, you know. And y'all y'all make the best with it, your guy. But, but Paul throws a flag on that play and he says, no, don't you see that comparison leads to competition and competition leads to division. If we're going to have unity in ACNA, I need to say, you know what? Todd's just a servant. He's just... God gave him a certain job to do, and he's trying to do it the best he knows how. And that same phrase is true of every single bishop in ACM. They're just servants trying to do the best they can as God gave them a job to do. Now, how kind God is. When you and I start to look at things this way, God's way, we start sliding back from <laughs> competition to collaboration our factions start to heal up and we find more unity. We move from the pride to humility. We don't worry so much about whether my group wins because then everybody's gonna win. We start focusing on God's power and not the package he puts it in. All right, so is there a leader in your life, let me just ask this, whom you are comparing to someone else? Maybe they come out better, maybe not. You know, but uh, maybe it's somebody at work. But in the Christian context that we're discussing tonight, 
Maybe you like one of the preachers here at Savior more, or maybe you like one of the musicians here at Savior more, or one of the pastors on our staff more than another. Well, everybody's going to have their natural likes. I, I'm not saying anything against that, but be careful that your comparison doesn't lead to competition, because competition will lead to division. And God wants to spare us the pain of that. All right, last thing I'll say where Paul's trying to get us on God's train of thinking is this, and it's about preaching. Not only does God hide his power in weak people, he hides his power in weak preaching. Meaning preaching itself is weak. God puts his powerful message in a pitiful medium. And now the reason why Paul does this right here, and he takes this idea that God hides his power in weakness and applies it to preaching, is because it's preaching that's a big part of the comparisons in this church that he's writing to. People are lining up behind Paul or Apollos or Peter based largely on how well they preach. And Paul does not come out very well in the preaching Olympics. He says, when I came to you, I didn't use lofty words, impressive wisdom. He says, I came to you in weakness. I was timid. I was trembling. My message, my preaching were very plain. I relied, why did he do that? I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did it so you wouldn't trust in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Now think about that phrase. So you would not trust in human wisdom, but in the power of God. What does Paul mean? Well, I don't think it's anti-intellectual. He's not saying it's better to be uneducated than educated. And Paul was an intellectual. He was one of the brightest people of his day. He had a great education. He, I don't even think he's saying it's anti-oratory. He's not saying you can't use that in his bashing of these clever and persuasive speeches. He's actually using a masterful oratory to, to, come, to make that uh, cause. No, what he's saying is, I don't put any confidence in that. I don't put human wisdom, good. I don't put confidence in it to get God's work done. Human oratory, good, but I don't put confidence in it to get God's work done. What happens in preaching is the work of the Spirit of God. We can't manipulate it. We can't control it. And in preaching, it's just, we have to chalk it up and say it's God's power. And God chooses to hide his power in a weak medium so that everybody knows, wow, that has to be God. Some years ago, when everybody was gaga about everything postmodern in the church and emergent in the church, I went to a conference in California and somebody stood up there front and said, oh, preaching. Preaching is so passe. Preaching today is just simply outmoded. And I'll tell you why. Preaching is a one-way thing. And, and, and people want dialogue. They want community. And, and this is too individualistic. And so people want to interact today. And so what we really need today during a worship service is not a sermon. We need like three or four people, maybe sprinkled throughout the service, each standing up and speaking for two or three minutes each. And then maybe other people can respond then. Well, whatever you think about that idea, I can tell you, as a preacher, it is easy to feel outgunned. Preaching is as low-tech and as low-budget as it gets. You know, the average budget to make and market a, a, a new theatrical release movie today is $100 million. $100 million. You know what the budget is for this sermon? About five cups of coffee and some printer ink. 
<laughs> That's all it is. I don't even have flip charts tonight, man. And so it's just one person standing up and talking. You go, that's never going to work. You know what? It's the craziest thing. And God says, I've chosen that through lowly preaching, my power will be released. I like working through weak people. I like working through the weakness of preaching. Through preaching, people come to faith in Christ. Through preaching, addicts get sober. Through preaching, suburbanites find a new resolve and heart to serve those in need. A few years ago, the United Methodist Church interviewed leaders who were fighting for racial justice. And they said, how did you become committed to this cause? Because it's, it's thankless work. I mean, people misunderstand you, they judge you, you can go a lifetime and not see very much progress. And it, it's a heartbreaking commitment that you're all are making. Where'd you start with that? And so many of them in the survey responses said, you know what, it was preaching. I heard a sermon and God spoke to me through that sermon and awakened me and I began to get involved. Oh man, so now why would God do it this way? Because he knew we'd all be tempted to line up behind the powerful leader, the effective public speaker. And Paul says, that's not the way it works in God's church. That person is just God's servant, and God can speak through that person, and he can speak through the person in your small group, and he can speak through the person who says a few halting words in prayer in the nursing home on Tuesday morning, which were maybe the most important words spoken in the entire church during these seven days. All right, so how do we apply this to our, our lives here at Savior tonight? Well, right now we're enjoying unity. If you're wondering, did I bring this up because I'm, I'm worried about something going on? No, I brought it up because it's the first part of the book of Corinthians, which we're studying right now. And so thank God. But, you know, our relationships have been tested during this pandemic. We haven't been able to see each other. We, we lose that, that kind of social fabric. It starts to fray a little at the edges, which is why I cannot wait to get back to in-person worship and have more time together. Um, but... Tonight's scripture, I would say, is mostly an affirmation for us, bless the Lord. But as the Bible says, let the one who stands take careful lest they fall. So I would just ask, is there any area in our church where in your heart of hearts, if you were honest, you say you're starting to use the word kind of they. Maybe the they's like a different kind of uh, a ministry style than you do. Or maybe the they's are a different age or they like a different kind of musical worship or... Uh, maybe it's yours is broader. You look out and you go, at least I'm not like they other evangelicals out there or they other Anglicans like there. I thank God I'm not like them. Because that kind of thinking and that kind of thing that begins to come out in our conversation, the dashboard should light up. There should be a red warning light going, remember, comparison leads to competition, which can lead to division. If you had come with me into my high school cafeteria, in about five seconds, you would have figured out where everyone in my high school sat. At one table, there was a table for jocks. And at the jocks table, there was Mike Weber, who went all state in track. He also played football. He had this muscled, chiseled body with not an ounce of fat on it. And, uh, and he sat there. And then there was another table for the band kids. 
and there was another table for the stoners and there was another table for the gearheads and there was another one this is a rural high school for the future farmers and there was one for I guess what most other kids at the school would have called the nobodies the kids who nobody even really knew their name they didn't say anything in class and in the halls they just kind of put their head down and and, and kept going well there were only like six feet between each of those lunch tables but there might as well have been six football fields with guard towers and electrified fence because nobody was going to be moving from table to table. That was not allowed. Well, the only exception I remember was occasionally a band kid would get into drugs and they would eventually, their, drug, their grades would drop and they would slide over to the stoner table. But other than that, there was no intermingling. And even in high school, I just knew, this is insane. I couldn't wait to get out of there. And Jesus is saying, the way I set up the cafeteria, here's what I do. I go in and I push all the tables together. There's only one big table. And then I put nice linen tablecloth across the whole thing and put candlesticks up there and nice music playing. Jesus had all the power. But he gave it all up. He became poor. He became outcast. He became utterly weak. In other words, he experienced what it was like to sit at every single one of those tables, including the nobody's table. So he is the only one who is both great enough and compelling enough and humble enough to unite and bring together the populars and the bandies and the stoners and the gearheads. And then he sets the table, sits at its head, and welcomes everyone as the host. Amen.